the same thing that Palestinians have been complaining about is, of course, rewarding Israel whenever Israel dug in its heels. And uh, in fact, that is exactly what Trump has done. He has rewarded Israel for being intransigent. In every conflict in the Middle East since the 1950s, we can safely say in civil wars, in the regional conflict, that Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the same side. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. On Wednesday, U.S. President Donald Trump announced that the U.S. is officially recognizing Jerusalem to be Israel's capital, claiming that this unilateral declaration would, quote, be in the best interests of the United States of America and the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. This comes, of course, as Palestinians remain occupied colonial subjects of Israel's control of the city as they struggle against rampant house demolitions, regular arrests and detentions, the revoking of residency permits, and brutal violence meted out by Israeli forces as Israeli settlements expand and choke off nearly every corner of East Jerusalem. The announcement also comes after more than two decades of failed so-called peace talks which aim to bolster and solidify the status quo, and 22 years of U.S. congressional support for the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, even though every six months U.S. presidents have signed national security waivers to keep the embassy in Tel Aviv. Trump is now allowing that waiver to expire so that the embassy can move to Jerusalem. For more, we're joined by the Electronic Intifada's Omar Karmi, who has been monitoring the situation and, and has published a full analysis of the embassy news on electronicintifada.net. Omar, tell us why the announcement is significant and how it fits within the 70-year-old support for Israel's control and settler colonization of Palestine. Is this, as you say in your piece, a requiem for the two-state solution? Well, um, I think... I think it is certainly a game changer. Um, I think what's happening here is that, uh, uh, and and uh, that Donald Trump has effectively thrown a huge spanner in the works of of, of conventional uh, Middle East peacemaking diplomacy. Not that that has been particularly successful in the past. Uh, it has to be said. However, he's not doing it that I can see for any other reason than that he wants to live up to a campaign promise and he wants to appeal to a certain base in the US that is rabidly pro-Israel uh, and uh, for whom the Palestinians simply don't really matter. So when he says this is in the interest of Palestinian-Israeli peacemaking, I think he's being somewhat disingenuous. Um, having said all that, having thrown this spanner in the works, uh, he is certainly um, setting the re- for fundamental change. In his speech in which he slurred or barely pronounced some words, uh, Trump said that, quote, the record is in. After more than two decades of waivers, we are no closer to a lasting peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula would now produce a different or better result. And this is somewhat ironic, given that this is what Palestinian civil society and countless analysts have always said, that the theatrics by every president since Oslo, 
who have resurrected the idea of a so-called peace process while handing out billions of dollars and tons of weapons and technology to keep Israel and its occupation military afloat is, is total folly. And it doesn't produce a different or better result for Palestinians. Uh, obviously, Trump is switching linguistic gears here, but, make, but his motorcade is traveling down the same highway, so to speak. What do you make of this? And, and how will the peace process charade change after this announcement? Well, I mean, he's exactly right that decades of international efforts haven't brought peace uh, and that doing the same thing over and over again is, I think, uh, in the formulation of Einstein, a sign of madness. Having said that, the same thing that Palestinians have been complaining about is, of course, rewarding Israel whenever Israel dug in its heels by giving more and more money in aid or military aid. Um, and uh, in fact, that is exactly what Trump has done. He has rewarded Israel for being intransigent by recognizing its claim to uh, Jerusalem. So, uh, so while his 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 pres- he, he might have correctly uh, uh, seen what the symptoms, he he's not really come up with much of a cure uh, that I can see. I think that what will happen, what is likely to happen is that there has to be a fundamental change in particularly the Palestinian approach to this so-called peace process, which has become a charade, has been a charade for years and years, if not decades, uh, and uh, which is now, seems to me, reached a screeching dead end. Uh, and what that change will be is, 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 is a different issue, but certainly Palestinians can look to Washington anymore uh, and hope for anything other than what I'd call hush money or simply financing to keep quiet, not complain about what's being forced on them. Omar, what should we be watching carefully at this point? What ultimately do you think will be the cost of this uh, theatrical announcement and the continuation of the U.S.'s support for Israeli apartheid and control over Palestine? Um. I, I think that the first serious effect will be felt uh, within Palestinian society and Palestinian polity. I mean, effectively, um, Trump has rendered the Palestinian Authority, such as it exists, um, uh, pointless. Uh, it has left it as a foundation, as, as, as a hollow edifice. A Palestinian Authority was erected, it was supposed to be a short five-year uh, uh, interim arrangement until uh, Palestinians achieved cha- uh, statehood under the Oslo Agreement. And it has staggered on for the past nearly 25 years uh, and uh, and has gotten nowhere. And um, Abbas, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the uh, Palestinian Authority leader, has staked his entire career on, on his entire leadership on, 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 on a negotiated peace. But effectively, Trump has pulled one of the one of three pillars uh, away from this 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 so-called peace. There is nothing left, um, which means that Palestinians have to fundamentally change their approach to how they hope to resolve this conflict. Um, negotiated agreement through the offices of the U.S. just simply does not seem possible anymore. 
finally, uh, we're about to hear from professor and media analyst Assad Abu Khalil about the political situation in Lebanon and the meddling by Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, We recorded the interview just before the former president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, was murdered last weekend. Uh, Yemen, of course, is where thousands of civilians have been killed. Uh, Hundreds of thousands are facing famine due to the Saudi war there, uh, which is armed by the U.S. and the U.K., and in terms of the Jerusalem embassy situation and broader plans for resurrection of, of you know, this whatever the peace plan, the next peace plan will look like, um, that will, again, leave Palestinians with nothing. Uh, Ali Abunima wrote earlier this week, the Saudis have been pressuring the Palestinians to capitulate to Israel, evidently to clear the Palestinian cause out of the way so that the growing Saudi-Israel alliance aimed at Iran can be brought fully into the open. Um, you mentioned Abbas and and the you know the, the the stale leadership there. What's your quick response to the situation in the Gulf over the last week, especially as it connects to the U.S. and Israel and the Palestinian Authority? Well, well, yes, I think I think I think what what Jerusalem, what this move on Jerusalem shows from from uh, Washington or from this particular administration is that uh, they're prepared to ride roughshod over anything called international. Uh, uh, legitimacy or law, uh, not even to pay lip service to it, uh, as it were. Uh, And that ties in very well with the kind of free-for-all chaos and uh, belligerence that the the region is gripped by at the moment, where, as you say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are are fighting a war on its poorest country in the region, Yemen, um, and uh, to huge civilian suffering. Uh, and of course, has been uh, the new crown prince has been throwing his weight around. How he's been throwing his weight around hasn't so far been very successful, and the all reports indicate that uh, Riyadh is very upset with this latest move from Trump, which suggests again that simply uh, the whole policy on the region from the U.S. and in general within the region is 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 unhinged at the moment and. And nobody really is no, knows what they're doing, and everybody effectively trying to assert their primacy. Uh, I'm not sure anybody's going to succeed at the moment. Omar Karmi, you're an associate editor of the Electronic Intifada. Your latest piece on Jerusalem and Trump's announcement is up on electronicintifada.net. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. And coming up next, an in-depth interview with Assad Abu Khalil as Israel continues to threaten Lebanese civilians and the Israel-Saudi alliance creeps out of the shadows. But first, here's a track by Bay Area-based musician Naima Shalhoub called Borderlands. The new music video for Borderlands is also out and up on the podcast blog. Check it out. We'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. Hands from love in the soil He's called 
to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In November, Lebanon's Prime Minister Saad Hariri attempted to deliver his resignation, with many analysts suggesting the entire theater was engineered by Saudi Arabia. As the Electronic Intifada's Ali Abunima wrote in mid-November, quote, the latest Saudi power play to weaken the Lebanese resistance and political movement Hezbollah by forcing Lebanon's Prime Minister Saad Hariri to resign appears to have backfired. After a bizarre episode in which he appeared to be held captive by the Saudis before traveling to Paris and then Cairo, Hariri finally returned to Beirut in mid-November. There he promptly rescinded his resignation after meeting with Lebanese President Michel Aoun. This comes on the heels of Saudis' moves to publicly embrace Israel after years of allying in the shadows. And as Israel continues to threaten Lebanon, its civilians, and Hezbollah with yet another war 11 years after the Israeli military's defeat there in 2006. We're excited to be joined today by Assad Abu Khalil, professor at California State University Stanislas and the author of the widely read blog, The Angry Arab News Service. We wanted to bring him on today to talk about the current political situation in Lebanon and how Saudi Arabia and Israel fit into the equation. Assad, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for hosting me. Uh, so let's get into the weeds here. Can you talk about the chronology of events over the last month or so? How do you analyze the Hariri resignation attempt here? Well, I think I would certainly place it in the context you alluded to, which is a growing Israeli-Saudi alliance, not only over Lebanon, but throughout the Middle East. And it is partly that, and it is partly the fact that the new ruler of Saudi Arabia since 2015, the crown prince, is really not finding his way around the world. He is engaged in many adventures. He's overstretched, and every adventure he launches, it doesn't go the way he intends to. Things are not going his way in Palestine, where he wanted to push a certain faction over others. He was a big advocate like UAE of Mohammed Dahlan. They wanted to bring him in back to Palestine, and that hasn't worked yet. In Lebanon, he has exactly the same agenda as Israel, which is to basically disarm the resistance. It's not about Hezbollah. It's not about Hezbollah's ideology. It's about making Lebanon safe for Israeli aggression and invasion. And that's what this is about. In Yemen, things are going really badly, and he wanted to have a scapegoat. And he convinced himself rather bizarrely that the reason why they are not doing well in Yemen, his armies and the UAE, is because of Hezbollah's intervention. In reality, and WikiLeaks confirmed that, 
the relations between the Houthis, who now control Yemen, and the Iranians were never very strong. I mean, if anything, the launching of the Saudi attack on Yemen uh, inaugurated uh, the relations between the Houthis and the Iranians, and certainly made them closer. Hezbollah's role is really tangential, purely in terms of media campaign and support and speeches in that regard. And also, they do not need Hezbollah's support. So he decided that Hezbollah was in charge, and especially after the missiles landing on Riyadh. Uh, Saad al-Hariri is not the only prime minister who is a mere puppet of the Saudi government. What is interesting about media coverage of Lebanon is that we have heard for many years about Sina regime controlling this prime minister or that prime minister, but we rarely hear about Saudi regime controls of this ruler and that prime minister or that president or that speaker throughout the Arab world. They control them by a variety of means, either through bribery or blackmail or both. Saad al-Hariri was handpicked by the king of Saudi Arabia to succeed his father after his assassination in 2005. They decided that he went too far in the national unity government that was formed uh, this year. They basically wanted Lebanon to be in a state of constant instability, as long as with that uh, paralyze Hezbollah and weaken it. And they basically assumed so naively and foolishly that they weren't going to get rid of Saad al-Hariri and replace him with his brother. The plan did not go as well as they intended because there was so much humiliation that most Lebanese felt the uh, choreography of the resignation. The fact he was summoned there and he was put under house arrest, even though nobody in the Arab world is supposed to admit that he was in fact a prisoner, just like the other princes who were prisoners in the Ritz-Carlton and Riyadh. And he was made to read a statement uh, that they wrote for him. It's obviously uh, a lie when he claimed later that he wrote his own statement. Uh, Saad al-Hariri is not somebody who can write one full sentence of Arabic on his own. So he read that statement, and uh, that was supposed to change the political map of Lebanon. Instead, the man who has very little... Uh, limited abilities and capabilities suddenly became a national hero and there was a rallying cry behind him and people were pleading the world for his return. And the president of Lebanon stood very resolved against Saudi attempt to change the political landscape of Lebanon and he basically directed his efforts to France and other Western governments calling for the release of the prime minister and he said bluntly in one particular point that the prime minister is detained and he won't, and that Saudi Arabia committed an act of aggression against Lebanon. He used these words. And uh, even though the media in the West did not report those. Uh, and then, of course, he was released. He came back to Lebanon to a welcome zero. And Saudi Arabia is now not at square one, but it is worse than what it was before it started the crisis. But this crisis really tells us about the political and military skills of the new upstart crown prince of Saudi Arabia. That's the voice of Assad Abu Khalil. Assad, um, let's talk specifically about uh, the shadows here. For many years, Saudi and Israel have been aligned, but not publicly. And now they're coming out of the shadows. Um, how and why is this happening right now? Well, first of all, we have to remember that the Saudi-Israeli alliance goes back all the way to the 1950s. In every conflict in the Middle East since the 1950s, we can safely say 
in civil wars, in the regional conflict, that Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the same side. In 1958, there was a civil war in Lebanon. The United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel were on the same side. In the Lebanese civil war, right at the outset of the war, Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the same side. Both of them were supplying the right-wing militia death squads, uh, clients of Israel, with arms and money. If you talk about the Yemeni war of the 1960s, for much of that period, there is enough evidence now, which I shared with readers in Arabic, to point out that the cooperation between the Israelis and the Saudis in that war, and how meetings took place first in India, which later blossomed into closer coordination between the two governments. But something else has changed. Since September 11, the United States, the Saudi Arabia government was aware of growing resentment against its role in financing international fanatical groups all around the world. And they wanted to win back the support of Congress. And they did that by uh, following a recipe that most Arab governments and even the PLO and the Arafat followed, which is to appease the Israeli lobby. And that's exactly what the Saudis have done. Since then, under, under Ambassador Bandar bin Sultan, who was ambassador here in America during that time, they uh, started uh, open uh, relationship with the Israeli lobby, and they coordinated closely together. And it was only then that previous Saud, uh, pre previous Israeli lobby objections to American arms deal to Saudi Arabia were lifted completely. And now we find that no matter how many arms deals are reached between Saudi Arabia and Israel and uh, United States, uh, there are never any objections by the Israeli lobby, which is something rather new. Uh, so I would say that. There are several factors that created this climate of coordination. Uh, they see eye to eye on the Palestinian question. As a former uh, advisor to Netanyahu said, the Israelis really don't, uh, the Saudis don't give a deal about what happens to the Palestinians. They also see eye to eye on trying to challenge the Iranian role in the region, in the whole region. And the Saudis uh, were uh, in favor of an Israeli attack on Iran throughout the years. And in fact, tried to lobby the American government in that direction. They also see an eye, an eye, eye to eye on how to deal with the Arab uprising since 2011. As we remember from New York Times reporting, both Hosni Mubarak, uh, I'm sorry, both Saudi King and Netanyahu were lobbying the Obama administration to keep Hosni Mubarak, the Egyptian dictator, in power. So they wanted to keep the regional order under an authoritarian control of the Saudi regime. Uh, and now, they also coordinate together as two allies who have been unhappy with some aspect of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, especially during the Obama administration. So that joint dissatisfaction by the Saudi government and the Israeli government brought them closer together in that they felt Obama was not heeding their advice and was not taking seriously the threat from Iran that they saw. And and how does that differ from how the Trump administration has picked up this foreign policy uh, and, and its alliance with Saudi? Well, they have been thrilled. The Saudis and the Israelis have been really thrilled with the Trump administration for good measure. Don't get me wrong. It's not that Obama administration was in any way less pro-Israeli or pro-Saudi than this administration. But this administration is unconditional in its support for both Israel and the Saudi government, and they also gives them more leeway for action. You see, the Obama administration, if at some points uh, tried to restrain the Israeli behavior or Saudi behavior, it only did that 
in order to protect those governments. You see, they did that because they thought uh, their calculations were not in their own best interest. So Israel, the United States was acting for the best interest of Israel or the Saudi government. This administration does not really care. So even if uh, the Saudi uh, ruler is screwing up and making all sorts of blunder, and even if he may be undermining his own regime, hopefully that occurs, they just don't care. They just want to give a short-term support for whatever the Saudi ruler or the Israeli leader want to do, uh, even if it's not in their own interest. And that's why they are very happy. So they feel there are no restraints. There are no traditional restraints from the United States on their own behavior in the region. And that is that is new. What is also to their liking is that for the first time they see that the United States does not have a specific regional agenda, which means they can really do whatever they want in the region, and that's what's been happening. And that's why they are closer together than ever, because now they feel we can chart the course of events in this region since the United States is not there to bother us. That's right. Um, let's bring it back to Lebanon um, in terms of Israel's uh, continuing to threaten Lebanese civilians and Hezbollah uh, with yet another war. Uh, Hezbollah seems to be even more powerful and organized than it was a decade ago. Uh, what would happen if Israel attempted to wage another war on Lebanon right now? Well, I am of the view that the war is unlikely because Israel is very afraid of another confrontation with an army of volunteers which humiliated the mighty Israeli army in the last confrontation. What happened in 2006 is historic in the context of Arab-Israeli wars, for the first time we've seen the entire psychological advantage of the Israeli army, the fact that it's invincible and that Arabs are supposed to be scared of the Israeli might have gone. We now see the Arabs are fully aware it is now reversed, that the Israeli army is now scared of an army of young volunteers who forced the hand of the Israeli army in 2006 and made them humiliatingly withdraw from Lebanon. In 2000, in 2000 and later in 2006, when they failed to penetrate any kilometers inside Lebanese territory. For these reasons, the Israeli government is satisfied with the production of bluster and bombast. They just issue threat that, of course, Western correspondents in the Middle East never, get, uh, never bother to cover. Almost every day, certainly every week, there is some Israeli official who threatens Lebanon not Lebanon, the civilians of Lebanon, with death and destruction in the next confrontation. Uh, Hezbollah has been acting rather cautiously in that regard, but they also promise that if they are attacked by the Israelis, they will teach them a lesson, just like the lesson they taught them last time around. Finally, Assad, you monitor the Arab news media very closely. Um, what are you watching most carefully right now in the region uh, especially with regards to Israel and the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the thing that one watches uh, with great alarm is this uh, triangle of power between Jared Kushner, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and Netanyahu, this triumvirate of uh, three powers that have absolutely no regard for the lives and welfare of people in the region, uh, you know, raises alarm about the near future, what's going to happen. And I think it's a recipe, those three, uh, that we are going to see yet another attempt by this uh, three group of three governments 
to uh, end once and for all the Palestinian cause. But of course, it's not going to succeed. There were so many prior attempts to do that in so many decades. We are now marking the one century anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, and the Palestinian cause remains alive today as it was a century ago. Yet, for the first time now, even for the first time, even Sadat did not go as far. We have now the Saudi government willing to basically give Israel the gift of normalization without having Israel uh, submit or present the Palestinians with any acceptable compromise whatsoever. So instead of land for peace, which used to be the formula for the Saudis, we're going to have peace for nothing. The Saudis are going to provide Israel with full normalization in return for vague promises of economic self-development for the Palestinians, which is exactly the formula that is being prepared by Jared Kushner in close coordination with the Israeli prime minister. I am also watching very closely, obviously, the development inside Saudi Arabia. I am really banking on the new crown prince that he may be our best hope to end once and for all the rule of the House of Saud. If he keep acting the way he is, uh, we may witness that in our lifetime. That would be uh, remarkable, <laughs> to say the least. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait for, for one of your uh, books to come out on, on whatever happens. Okay. <laughs> Asad Abu Khalil, you're a professor at Cal State University at Stanislaus and the author of the blog, The Angry Arab News Service, which can be found at angryarab.blogspot.com. Thanks again for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you very much, Nora. Take care. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>